I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of the Word of God and look with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, as we begin this new series of sermons through the book of Exodus. If you're visiting with us at Woodlawn, it is our normal habit to take books of the Bible and to preach through those books of the Bible, and we do that for a number of reasons. One, we believe that each of these 66 books of the Bible are equally the Word of God. In other words, John, the Gospel of John, is no more or no less the Word of God as, say, the book of Exodus. So we want to give our time and attention to this Word of God. And if we want to know rightly who God is, then we must give ourselves to knowing this God through His Word and that Word in its entirety. So we're going to spend the next year together in the book of Exodus uh, studying. I see somebody saying four years, five years. No, it will not be four or five years for us to go through, for us to go through the book of Exodus. Um, we're going to spend the next uh, year together. By year, I mean a year's worth of sermons. That means at least, you know, 52 sermons we'll spend together through, to, uh, through the book of Exodus with one another. Exodus is, thank you, sweetheart. After singing, I leaned over and said, Carly, will you please get me some water? Exodus is ultimately a story about God providing redemption, calling to himself his people, and giving them his presence. Exodus is ultimately a story about God redeeming his people, calling this people to himself, and God giving himself to his people, giving his presence to his people. Exodus is set in a larger narrative. Perhaps you've heard this fancy word before, the Pentateuch. You can hear a little bit in that phrase of uh, the word five, Pentagon, for example, five. So the first five books of the Bible that you and I refer to as books of the Bible were originally written by Moses as one narrative. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all one narrative, one book. We understand these to be individual books. So for example, if we were reading from our Hebrew Bible this morning in Exodus chapter 1, you don't see it in verse 1 in your English Bibles, but Exodus chapter 1 verse 1 in the Hebrew begins with the word and, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. So it's a continuation of this narrative that God has given to his people from the book of Genesis. And by the way, Exodus is going to conclude with the Lord filling the tabernacle with his glory and continue on in the book of Leviticus, explaining to the people of God how they must continually walk rightly with God. In other words, the book of Exodus leaves us with an understanding that there is something more that is needed. Leviticus reminds us that that which is more is sacrifice, and particularly a blood sacrifice. And yet we're left with the feeling from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that there is indeed something far greater than the sacrificial system that God has given to the nation of Israel. And we ultimately learn through the text of Scripture that that one who is greater is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I hope to accomplish as we walk through this incredible text of Scripture together is not only for us to walk away with some type of historical understanding, perhaps we walk away and say, ha, I never thought that the nation of Israel actually crossed the Red Sea at this point. But friends, may I submit to you this morning that the intended purpose of the book of Exodus isn't for you and me to walk away and say, I know where the nation of Israel crossed the Red Sea. 
there's a far greater intended meaning than just simply knowing these historical facts. We want to learn those historical facts, but ultimately we want to know what has God communicated to his people through the book of Exodus and what does that communication require of you and me so that we might walk rightly with God. Exodus begins, you and I call it Exodus. We get that primarily through the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. But in the Hebrew Bible, this is the book of names. It begins with this, with this phrase. Notice in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 1, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then we're going to get the listing of this name giving, given an order, uh, given in a uh, collection of names by those who were born to the various women with whom Jacob had children, Leah, Rachel, and then the concubines of Leah and Rachel. Exodus begins in a completely or with a completely different note than what Genesis has ended. If we go back just a page back in your Bibles and review with me for just a moment the very ending of the book of Genesis. Genesis ends with this different tone. Genesis ends with this sense, with this feeling that perhaps that which started in the garden continued with Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden, coming to an abrupt stop with the narrative in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 with Noah and the flood. Genesis ends with this kind of abrupt feeling that perhaps hope is indeed lost again. What happens at the very end of the narrative of Genesis? Joseph is dead. Joseph is the one that ends up providing a means of salvation for the rest of his brothers. You'll remember his brothers sold him into slavery. And when they sold him into slavery, Joseph found himself down in Egypt where Exodus is going to begin. Joseph is down in Egypt and he ends up rising to the highest position of authority in Pharaoh's house, so much so that Joseph is going to end up providing salvation to the sons of Israel, to his brothers. Why a famine hits the land. You'll remember that narrative from Genesis where Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh. There's going to be seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And those seven years of famine come and yet Joseph has led so well that he's prepared not only to bring about a sense of salvation for the nation of Egypt, but also for the sons of Israel. The sons of Israel make their way down to Egypt, and unbeknowing to them, they end up receiving salvation, if you will, through the hands of the brother that they sold into slavery years ago. The narrative ends here in Genesis chapter 50 with that one who has provided salvation for the nation of Israel, for the sons of Israel. And look at verse 26 of, of Genesis chapter 50. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and Joseph's plot in life is the exact same plot in life for everybody who came out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He's dead. This seminal figure, this one that has provided salvation, it's as though... The narrative has come to an end, and yet we continue with Genesis chapter, Exodus chapter 1. And where Genesis chapter 50 ends with this 
sadness, if you will, Exodus chapter 1 begins on this note of hope. And what we learn through the very few verses in the opening chapter of Exodus is God is one who is exceedingly faithful to his word. Notice the text of scripture again. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. He's going to give us the names of these sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Of course, you would think that after Benjamin's name would be? I'm trying to see how well you know your genealogy through the book of Genesis. Joseph. Joseph's name is mentioned in just a few words later. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But notice verse 7. How does verse 7 begin? With a conjunction. With an important conjunction. But the people of Israel... There's this incredible sense and feeling of of hope of what is going to take place in this narrative of Exodus. Don't you love the book of Exodus? It's filled with a lot of stories. I don't know about you, stories that I firmly remember from my childhood. I remember sitting in a first grade boys class with an elderly man by the name of Lewis. He spelled his name L-O-U-I-S. Mr. Lewis had never been married, and we had this felt board in Mr. Lewis's class, and I can remember as he was teaching us these stories from the book of Exodus, as on that felt board, he put those little little characters up and imaged for us the crossing of the Red Sea. But don't you love the stories even before we get to the Red Sea? How about Moses standing at the burning bush? And Moses at the burning bush understands one of the most important things we can comprehend about the person of God, and that is his very character described by his name. God says to Moses, I am. But we not only read the story of the burning bush, Exodus is filled with the story of God providing bread from heaven and water from a rock. And in that narrative, we learn God is one who makes provisions for his people. But Exodus is also filled with many more incredible stories. Exodus is filled with that incredible story of the nation of Israel who had found themselves enslaved for 400 long years. How old are we as a nation? 245, 246 roughly years? Imagine double the number of years that the U.S. has been in existence that we as a nation would have been enslaved. And yet... Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And how can we forget the plagues before we ever get to the Red Sea? I mean, incredible narratives about about, uh, water turning to blood and gnats filling the the entire uh, place of Egypt and, and locusts coming and devouring everything that is in sight and culminating with that last plague, the death of the firstborn of every male child or animal. The crossing of the Red Sea. We march on from the crossing of the Red Sea, and then we move into that narrative in which we see these stories of where God calls himself a people, and who doesn't love the narrative of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And there, God 
gives his very word to his people. The narrative doesn't just end there, does it? How well does the nation of Israel receive this word from the Lord? They don't like it, do they? They get impatient. They're tired of waiting for Moses to come down. And and so you have this this incredible narrative where the people of Israel go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, we're tired of this mess. And Aaron says, I got a plan for you. Give me all of your gold, I'll form, it into, I'll form it into an idol, and this will be the God that we can worship who saved us, who brought us up out of the land of, of Egypt. So he throws their gold into the fire, gets that gold, melts it down, and forms it into a, into a calf. The people of, of Israel begin to worship that false god. Moses hears the net noise from up on the mountain, and when he comes down, he sees what's taking place. He breaks the Ten Commandments, and oh, by the way, the people learn that their greatest hope being the people of God and moving into the promised land with God himself is now going to come with a consequence. God is not going to go with his people. He's going to send a representative, his angel, and then ultimately Moses serves as this, as this intermediary between God and, and the people and makes a plea to the Lord, and then God says, I have a deal for you, Moses. I will go with the people, my presence will go with the people, and a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. There are incredible stories in this book of Exodus that communicate so many incredible truths to us about the very character and nature of God. So Exodus begins on this different note. All hope is not lost. Yes, Joseph is dead, but there is a promise to the sons of Israel. Notice again the very beginning of Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel. An important note, this will be the last time in all of the Pentateuch where this phrase, sons of Israel, refers to the 12 sons of Jacob. Now keep in mind, you'll remember, Jacob, his name is later changed to Israel. So in this text of scripture here, where where the Bible reads, these are the names of the sons of Israel, we could also say, these are the names of the sons of Jacob. So then he gives us the names, but notice, Notice verse 7, but the people of Israel. You see what happens at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, we're reminded that Israel is nothing more than this small band, literally, of the sons of Jacob. In fact, the text of Scripture tells us how many are there? Seventy. There's seventy people in this clan of Israel. What can 70 people do? You'll remember from a historical standpoint that God has given a promise to to Abraham. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and the Lord says to Abram, you are going to be a father of many nations. That promise is communicated again in chapter 13, chapter 15, and by the way, in chapter 15, in verse 13, we not only learn of God's promise again to the nation of Israel, but we are told by a sovereign God, by the way, the people are, are going to end up in slavery for over 400 years. So Moses is preparing us in Genesis chapter 15 for what we're going to experience here in the entirety of the book of Exodus. So this small group of people are in Egypt, and they are there for 400 long years, and they start out as a band of 70, but notice what Moses is telling us by verse 7. Will they remain a small band of 70 and die out, and all hope be lost? 
No. Friends, by the time the nation of Israel come out of the land of Egypt, a place they have been for 400 years, they begin as a group of 70 people and they come out of the nation of Egypt being approximately some 2 million people. An incredible story of the providence of God that yes, God is going to be faithful to His covenant promises and to His people. Genesis chapter 1, verse 7 reminds us that Exodus is ultimately a continuation of this garden narrative that began in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, go with me just for a quick second to Genesis chapter 1 and look at verse 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. This is the creation narrative. God has created, by this point, all things. He's created Adam and Eve. He's created, he's created humanity. And listen at what God tasked humanity to accomplish. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living creature that moves on the earth. You see what Moses is doing when we come to Exodus chapter 1? Moses is reminding us through this language of chapter 1 verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, He's reminding us of this principle that God set out in creation that God is still being true to this creation principle that he will indeed call to himself a people who will be large, who will be powerful, who will be mighty, who will overcome, who will subdue who will rule what god promised in creation to humanity moses reminds us in the language of exodus chapter 1 verse 7 is continuing but by the way this promise in exodus in genesis chapter 1 verse 28 about the nation of Israel being fruitful and multiplying is repeated multiple times throughout the narrative in Genesis. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. Genesis chapter 17, verse 20. Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 35, verse 13. In fact, it's interesting, as I mentioned Genesis chapter 35, verse 13, it's interesting the listing of the names that we are given in Exodus. If you read this genealogical record throughout the book of Genesis, there are a few times in which the listing of the names of the sons of Jacob are given, and they're given in a few different orderings. So the order that we have here in, Genesis, in Exodus chapter 1 is an order that is similar or exactly the same to what we get from Genesis chapter 35. In fact, turn to Genesis chapter 35, verse 11 with me just quickly. I don't want to read too much into the listing of these, these names. I don't think that there's uh, any real meaning in, in, in that giving, so, uh, in the giving of the, the listing of these names, so don't read too much into that. But why might he have given the listing of these names in this order. Notice Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. And God said to him, this is right after he's changed Israel's name, I am God Almighty, do what? Be fruitful and multiply. So let me tell you what, Mo let me tell you what Moses is doing, even in the listing of this name before we ever get to Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. He's setting in context a listing of these names in the same text of Scripture that he has recommunicated this promise or this command 
to the people of God to be people who are fruitful and multiply. We already know before we get to Genesis, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, that this text of Scripture has a completely different tone than the tone of which Genesis ends in. There is incredible hope. This hope communicated in in chapter 1, verse 7 is located in this creation narrative. But it's not only located in this creation narrative, it's located in this narrative of great redemption. Remember what I said at the very beginning of this story? Exodus is a story of God doing what? Redeeming. Redeeming. Redemption is woven through every narrative in the passage of Scripture in the book of Exodus. It begins with a narrative of redemption. The people are fruitful and multiply. Look at verse 8. There arose now over Egypt a king who does not know Joseph, and what's going to happen? He doesn't like the fact that the nation of Israel are actually doing what God had commanded. They are large. They are everywhere. He wants to stop it. And so he says to all the ladies given birth, hey, I want you to kill the firstborn of the sons of all, of the, of all the Hebrews. But God provides redemption, does he not? How does he do it? Those Hebrew those midwives, they don't listen to Pharaoh, do they? They concoct a story and say, Pharaoh, we're sorry. These Hebrew women are way different than those Egyptian women. When they say they're ready to give birth, I mean, they are ready to give birth. They just pop those babies right out. Moses, a story of redemption, is it not? A young man born to a Hebrew mom. She's scared for his life. She places him in a basket and sets him down the river. And it just so happens that Pharaoh's own daughter is standing at the shore of the river. And she sees this little basket and she hears a cry. And there's a baby in there. Oh, but that's not the only story of redemption. Who's going to raise this young kid? He's a a Hebrew kid. What are we going to do? Aha! There's another young girl standing beside the riverbed that day, and it just so happens she's closely connected to Moses. I have an idea, she says to Pharaoh's daughter. I'll take this young baby back to my mother, who happens to be Moses's mother. A story of redemption. We all see the narrative of redemption in the crossing of the Red Sea, do we not? But what happens when we come to the narrative after God has given his Ten Commandments? The nation of Israel sins by forming the calf. There's also redemption woven into that narrative. What does God want to do with the nation of Israel after they sin? Does he want to continue with them into the promised land? He wants to destroy them. He's like, hey, I've done this before. We'll just start over with a new group of people. And Moses says, wait a minute, God. Don't do that. A story of redemption. We see creation. We see redemption woven into the very narrative of this passage of Scripture. Exodus is is woven together in three large units. Let me give those to you just briefly this morning. The first unit in the book of, ne- uh, book of uh, Exodus is Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 18. And Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 18 is this incredible story of God saving the nation of Israel. By the way, if you wanted to look at a timeline for the nation of Israel, for, for the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1 is 400 long years. Exodus chapter 1 covers 400 years of history. And then you get into the text of Scripture between Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2 through Exodus chapter 15 covers approximately another 80 years. So the narrative of Moses 
is about 80 years. And then from the rest of the book of Exodus, you're only talking about one, one year. So chapter one, 400 years. The next 13 or 14 chapters, 80 years. The next 20 chapters, one year. Perhaps even less than one year. So Genesis chapter one through Genesis chapter 18 is a chronicling of this entire narrative of Moses bringing the nation of Israel outside of Egypt, saving the nation of Israel. The next major section in Exodus is Exodus chapter 19 through 24. In Exodus 19 through 24, we have this incredible narrative of, of God calling to himself this group of people. And you remember what I said at the very beginning? Exodus is a story of God redeeming and calling to himself a people. And the narrative that we have beginning in Genesis, Exodus chapter 19 through Exodus chapter 24 is this narrative of God calling to himself a people. How does God call to himself a people? Might I submit to you this morning that the same way in which God called to himself a people in the book of Exodus is the same way that God is calling to himself a people to this day. God calls his people through giving them his word. And what does God do in Exodus 19 through 24? He calls himself his people and he gives his people his word through what? His law. And in giving them the law of God, God gives to them what he expects of humanity, what he expects of his people. And then the latter half of the book of Exodus from 25 to chapter 40 is God in great specific detail reminding his people of how he desires to be worshipped. So you get this incredible very specific detail of how everything in the tabernacle is to be woven together. Exactly how the Ark of the Covenant is to be made and what type of wood is to be used and and how it's to be overlaid with gold. You get this very specific instructions of how the sons of Aaron, the priests, are, are to dress in exactly what they are supposed to do. We learn from that narrative that God is a God who is intimately interested and cares about how his people worship him. One Old Testament scholar noted in relationship to the comparison in Exodus to Moses and the nation of Israel, quote, in many ways the experiences of Moses and the first part of Exodus parallel the experiences of the Israelites in the latter portions of the book. Both Moses and Israel flee from Egypt. Moses flees from Egypt in chapter 2, and Israel flees from Egypt in chapter 12. Both come to a mountain where God speaks to them. Moses in chapter 3, and the nation of Israel in chapter 19. God calls Moses into his service in chapters 3 and 4, and God calls Israel into covenant relationship with him in chapters 19 through 24. Exodus is a story of a God who redeems and calls to himself his people and gives himself to his people. He gives his very presence to his people. And we say, so what? Those are wonderful, interesting facts, historically or spiritually, that flow from the narrative and the book of Exodus. But, Pastor, so what? As we go through the book of Genesis, through the book of Exodus, I'm going to have to get Genesis out of my vocabulary here, church family. As we go through the book of Exodus, one thing that I want us to see highlighted again and again and again, and to help us see that, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of Jude real quick. Jude is a little book that occurs right before the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Exodus reminds us that we need a redeemer. 
Exodus reminds us that we desperately need a redeemer. Notice what Jude says in Jude verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, and what did Jesus do? Who saved a people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Who was ultimately responsible for providing redemption to the nation of Israel as they fled from Egypt? The text of Scripture says Jesus. And friend, what I hope you realize as we make our way through the book of Exodus, that just like the nation of Israel, so too are we a people who are in bondage to sin and apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can never have freedom from those sins. Exodus reminds us of our desperate need of a redeemer. And Jesus is that one who has redeemed us from our sins. You might remember the writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 3 that Jesus is greater than Moses. Look with me in in Hebrews chapter 3. We'll begin actually in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to culminate in in, in chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood... He himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You already hear uh, through phrases or words in this passage images back to both Genesis and Exodus. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus provides redemption for humanity. Jesus saves us from our sins. But Jesus is a far better Savior than Moses could have ever hoped to be. Look at chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's servant, in all of God's house, as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But notice verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Friends, if you think the story of Moses as a redeemer is incredible. Moses pales in light of the redemption that you and I have been provided by the person of Jesus Christ. For let me tell you what Exodus is not. Exodus is not a story of how you and I can come out of our own slavery. 
It's not a narrative of how you have been enslaved by an evil, wicked boss who is not paying you enough wages so that you weave your narrative into the narrative of the nation of Israel and find yourself as this poor, old, broken, slave-needing redemption. The greatest need in humanity is not for you and I to be freed from particular relationships that might in some measurable way enslave us. Friend, the greatest need that we have is that our sins might be redeemed and washed away by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For see, apart from that redemption applied to your life, friend, the Bible reminds us that there is a greater experience of slavery than that which the nation of Israel endured in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. The far greater experience of slavery is your slavery for an eternity to sin. The Bible says that your enslavement to sin for an eternity will set you apart from a holy, righteous God where you will spend an eternity separated in a place the Bible calls hell. Exodus reminds us that we need a Redeemer. Exodus reminds us that God gives His very presence to His people. Look at the very end of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 40, the last few verses of Exodus chapter 40. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. God has indeed given His very presence to His people in the book of Exodus, and it reminds us that so too has God in this very expression given to us his presence. How has God given to us his presence? He has given to us his presence through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, and by giving to us the Holy Spirit, who is that ever-present expression of Christ and the Father in our lives. What does God do when he gives his presence to his people? He calls them to himself. He expects them to live by his commandments. But what does Paul remind us in Exodus, in, sorry, in Romans chapter 7? Can the law of God ever cause us to walk in righteousness? No. The law just simply shows us how, how far away from God we are. But praise God that Romans doesn't end in Romans chapter 7. It, inclu- it con- continues to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son and the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness required of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice the end of verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, friends, God, in giving to you and me His very presence, has enabled you and me at this very moment to walk rightly with Him. Exodus will continually remind us that God has given to his people his presence. Exodus also reminds us that the ultimate creation 
of God calling to himself a people will finally culminate in what Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 65 and what John sees ultimately in Revelation chapter 19. God is making a new heavens and a new earth in which his people, you and I, will dwell with him forever in that ultimate place, the promised land. Like the nation of Israel, so too are the people of God on a journey waiting for and anticipating God's promise to us, the promised land. Exodus reminds us of God's creative purpose continuing in life and pointing us toward the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God, through our time in Exodus, renew your desire for Jesus' return. Lastly, Exodus reminds us that God is indeed calling to himself a people. He called the nation of Israel to himself. We see that displayed in Exodus 19 through the end of the chapter. He tells them how he desires to be worshipped. And in the same vein, friends, God is indeed continuing this call and creating for himself a people. And that people, as we understand it from the New Testament, is the body of Christ, the church. And as we make our way through the book of Exodus, may God increase in us a deeper love and passion for gathering with that people. For see, friends, as it was in the book of Exodus, so too is it now. It is impossible to claim that you are part, connected to the people of God, and, let, and yet live your life disconnected from the people of God. Exodus reminds us of each of our deep need to be so closely connected to the body of Christ. And in conclusion, as one theologian said, we need exactly what Israel needed. A liberator to save us from slavery. A provider to give us bread from heaven and living water from Christ. A lawgiver who gives us his word and empowers us to live by it, and a God whose presence dwells among us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the book of Exodus. We thank you, God, that in this narrative, you have so clearly revealed yourself We thank you that in this narrative we learn of you as being this God who is a redeemer, this God who is calling to himself a people, a God who is giving himself to his people. And so, Lord, we pray as we make our way through this book that you would deepen our love and affection for you, that you would deepen our appreciation for the sacrifice of Christ, that you would increase our desire for living in covenant relationship with you and with one another. Friend, would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and just reflect on the preaching of this text of Scripture? Have you experienced the hope that the nation of Israel experienced at the beginning of Exodus as they lived out their lives doing that which God created them? They were fruitful and they multiplied, a sign of God's promise to be faithful to them.
Have you experienced God's ultimate sign of faithfulness to you, Jesus? Has your life been redeemed? Or do you still find yourself like the nation of Israel living in bondage to your own sin? Would you trust in Christ today and be saved? As you reflect on this narrative of God's faithfulness to his people, would you spend a few moments and just give God thanks for his faithfulness to you? Would you thank God for those moments in which he gives to you his kindness? Would you thank God that he has given to you his presence? through the sending of his Holy Spirit. Would you ask God to increase your desire to be one who is led by his word and walks in faithfulness to that word? In just a moment, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. Friend, if you're here today and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front as we sing. It would be perfectly fine for you to just walk forward and just say to one of us, hey, I'd like more information about what it means to trust in Christ. Or you can see one of us after the service or while we sing, please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you for there are plenty of people and the life of this church seated around you who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, maybe you would like for one of us to pray with you. Perhaps like the nation of Israel, you have, you have a situation in your life where it seems as though God's promises to you have failed. And you'd like to say, Pastor, just pray for me that God would encourage me. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you during this time. Or thirdly, maybe God has placed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Would you stand with me as we sing?